Uh, well, good afternoon, history lovers, and welcome to the, the latest uh, History Ireland uh, Head School, uh, our second uh, at the Mihal O'Clary uh, Summer School. Uh, and uh, I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland. Uh, I hope you're all subscribers, uh, because uh, History Ireland is in receipt of no subsidies. It, it relies purely on the, uh, the, the support of its readers and uh, subscribers, and its advertisers to a small extent. Anyway, now, uh, I have been set the difficult task of... Um, pulling together the various disparate threads of this very interesting uh, weekend. I have to say, one of the things I, I've learned uh, coming to the Mihal O'Cleary uh, Summer School, and this is only my second one, is the tremendous uh, sort of Irish footprint in Europe in the early modern period. This, this theme comes out again and again, whether it be in culture, military matters, or whatever. Um, now, what we're going to do here to, 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 to this afternoon is we're, we're going to look at early modern Europe, and we're going to look at contemporary Europe, and we're going to try and tease out various uh, comparisons and contrasts. Um, so we've assembled two uh, early modernists. Are you an early modernist, John? That'll do. That'll do, yeah, close enough. Uh, John McCafferty here of, of UCD and um, Mark MP. Uh, they'll, they'll deal with the early modern period. And then we have our, our contemporary uh, commentators, Alan Titley. You're feeling contemporary... Sufficiently well, contemporary. Future, I hope. <laughs> and uh, uh, Daeglon de Bredoen. Um, they're going to look at the, the current uh, things. And of course, we will allow, we will allow the, the speakers to, to, to stray into the other areas, uh, area of comment. It's, it's a wide open uh, forum here. And of course, we will be encouraging you, the audience, uh, to get involved. So if at any stage you uh, object violently to something st said on the platform here, you know, don't, don't sit in silence. Put your hand up. <laughs> and uh, get your spake in. And by the way, just to warn you, like, I find these hedge schools are like sing-songs. You know, everybody wants to get in at the end, right? So you know, don't, don't wait till the end when it's too late. You know? So uh, John, I want to start with you, right? Because just going back to my, my remarks there about the, uh, the European uh, kind of uh, footprint, or sorry, the, the Irish footprint in Europe in the early modern period, it seems to me that uh, this is also the century where by the end of it, the conquest of Ireland is complete you know, with the Williamite settlement. And then the, the, the European, the shutters come down in the European dimension, in a sense, and then we, we sort of rediscover our Europeanness, well, probably with Eurovision, even before, you know, before the European Union, um, you know, uh, relatively recently. Yeah, probably Daniel O'Connell is the point at which things go back into the European frame. I think what, there's a number of things happen. First of all, there's Cromwell. It's fashionable not to blame, blame Cromwell anymore, but I still blame him for a lot. Um, and then there are, as you say, the, the, the War of the Two Kings and the, the end, really, of Catholic Ireland. What happens is, is that the kind of people who were able to pay for all these colleges on the continent lose their land, and they have no money left. Uh, and so the engagement with Europe becomes very much a kind of seminary engagement where there are still... There's still the skeleton of the seminary structure, but a lot of the other people, the merchants, the traders, the people who were in the armies, either disappear into the general population of Europe or return home. Um, so there is a point. And then the British state starts to try and create what we call a unitary state, a united kingdom. So by 1707, Scotland is united with England, and by 1801, Ireland is in the United Kingdom with Britain. So I think that that's what precipitates that kind of inwardness. Mark, is, is this reflected economically? I'm not sure if this is your area, but in terms of trade, I mean, I, I know that when we became independent in, in the you know, 1920s, something like 95% of our trade was with, with, with the neighbouring island. 
And by the time, of, by 1973, when we joined the, the European Union, it was still about 90%. You know. Now, was it always that, up to our, or, us joining the European Union, did the, the, the neighbouring island account for that proportion of our trade, or was it much more diverse earlier? I mean, I think it's inevitable that being so close to Britain with trade, I think it's inevitable there'll be a very strong association with, with Britain. But I mean, I think you can remember that in the early modern period, I mean, even dating back to the 15th century, you still have strong, well, elements of trade, strong family trading networks going on. Families in Galway, for example, are frequently going down to, I mean, Spain and the Iberian Peninsula is not... Um, alien to many right. many folks in Ireland. I mean, it's that strong trading connection, and it's a very historical trading route uh, in South in South Munster too. I mean, Christopher Columbus drops in apparently. Probably. Say, don't Probably. Say there's, a, there's a plaque saying he did. Now, did he or did he not arrive in Galway? <laughs> uh, yeah, there is anyway. a plaque actually. Yeah. Or did somebody think he might have arrived there? That's full of plaque up. Yeah, anyway. Zig and zag. I'm sure we're involved at some stage as well. You never know. Um, now. Daigle, can I, can I just get in on, yeah. On, yeah. on one thing? God, it's, it's early to be butting in a discussion, but we're going to do it anyway. Yes. Just on the question, you said the shutters came down, and it largely did, compared with what it was in the 17th century. But in the 18th century, remember, there were still a lot of Irish soldiers in the service of France. Yeah. And there was a lot of Irish soldiers. Obviously, the, the Stuarts were still the official kings, according to the Irish way of looking at things, and they supported that rotten buffoon Bonnie Prince Charlie when he decided to go to the Moor of Culloden. And then later, of course, the French Revolution was largely inspired by American and French revolutionary ideas. And then when the Irish people began to join the British army after 773 or whichever date you like to choose, uh, it is said that one-third of them are quartered one-third were in, in the army against Napoleon. And the interesting thing to me always is that in the Napoleonic Wars, even though we were fighting for Britain, um, as far as I'm aware, every single song in English and in Irish, and there are dozens and dozens of them there about Napoleon, they're all for Napoleon, yeah, yeah. even though we're fighting the other way around. So there was a European connection, we were very much aware of what was going on, but not in the same way as we were talking about in the 17th century. And Frank Hart brought out a fantastic two-disc collection, one of the last things he did before he passed away. Yeah. Um, I tried to learn one of them actually, and it defeated me in the end. It was so complicated. Anyway, that, mm -hmm. I'll try it. Like, I'll try it. We we'll tried later. For somebody can find the words <laughs> of it. Um, Daglan, do you do, do you think it's it's, it's uh, we rediscovered our Europeanness, or is that is that a cliche? You know, in in the last generation, or was it always there? Well, I'm. I don't want to show my age, but I'm old enough to remember when we when we joined the common market as it then was. I know it's hard to believe I'm that old, but there you go. I can remember too. We joined because of England. England, Britain was joining, and because of the farmers. And uh, you know, we sacrificed the fishing uh, industry at the time. Uh, I think they've recovered since. So, um, I mean, you know, a lot of Irish uh, fought in the joined up in the Second World War. Uh, I'm just looking at a, an Irish Times advertisement for a. a a supplement uh, which includes the Battle of Passchendaele. I had a, an uncle in Passchendaele, and he, he survived, and he, he survived on Kirk. So he was kind of a role model for me, really. But um, so there was always that. I mean, you went where where you needed to go uh, for for uh, to make a living. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I mean, there used to be that idea that we you know we used mainland Europe to, as a a respite to save the Catholic Church and 
Um, you know, we had the French are on the say, said the Jean van Vogt. Was, uh, we always had great hopes of the French, although uh, nothing great ever came of us. Um, Maybe that's a lesson for the future negotiations uh, on Brexit. <laughs> yes, well, as I said this morning, you know, we trust ourselves, you know. Now, just on, on that, uh, uh, on the, uh, us joining the, the, the common market, as it was then known, um, the arguments used were predominantly pragmatic. In other words, like that this is a no-brainer, we're going to get all this common agriculture fund money, you know. And, of course, the problem with those kind of arguments is they can, they can, they can flip over. I mean, so the, the position now is we are net contributors to the European yeah, Union. Yeah, but I mean... So does that, does that not expose the, the, the original um, uh, means used to persuade people to join... You know, it, it, it's a, it's a, it is a problematic basis on which to get anyone to support anything, a pragmatic basis, because those pragmatic arguments can change. Yeah, but the pragmatic arguments are always going to come first. It's the first thing people think of all the time mm. and later on. But there were ideological arguments at the time. I mean, one of them was, paradoxically, what we're talking about now, that it would take us out of the shadow of Britain. And I remember the constant debates that we are all Europeans now, and the, everything was European, and there was a big burst of Europeanness, whatever that meant at the time. And just as we were talking about both the historical events and the, the present ones, we we're always talking about the Irish contribution to Europe, what we shouldn't necessarily forget was the, the big inrush of um, religious orders from France into Ireland, particularly France in the 19th century, the Holy Ghost Fathers and very sisters. In other words, Catholicism was being renewed, a particular kind of Catholicism, coming from mainland Europe. So it was a two-way thing. Mm-hmm. It's also quite similar to what's happening in, in, in 17th century too, in terms, of the, in terms of recruitment. In the 1630s, you get a very active, you get the French coming into Ireland and actively trying to recruit Irish soldiers because they were sought after. There was a high regard for Irish soldiers, and the, the, I suppose the motivations for Irishmen is they get paid. A lot of them would, it's an economic argument, but they also had that ideology dead too, saying that they were fighting for the Catholic cause. So what you start seeing in the, certainly in the late 16th and early 17th century, you start to see Irishmen join the Spanish, because there's that history and strength. But by the 1630s, you actually see Frenchmen actively coming to Ireland and recruiting Irishmen, because of the reputation, and they're using the economic, but also the ideological argument. So it's, that tradition is very much still there. John, I want to come back to you now. I want to, I want to swing the focus back to the early modern period, right? I mean, anyone, anybody arriving a spaceship and looking at the situation in Europe, uh, if, they, if they arrives in Syria today, it would, it would look pretty much similar. Yeah. Chaos, violence, mm-hmm. huge loss. I mean, just could you give us a, a kind of a, 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 in about two minutes, a pen picture oh, yeah, sure. of, of, of what was going down in Europe? Because, I mean, it is... It is staggering if we forget about this, because I want to I bring that link that into to the, the contemporary situation. Just, just give us an idea mm-hmm. of what's happening there. Well, it's very like Alison said this morning. You have cyclical and recurrent violence. You have mass, the first really large migrations of people inside Europe of that scale. You have tens of thousands of people on the move for either ideological or political reasons. From where to where? Right across Europe, you have people leaving Poland back into the German lands. You have um, very large numbers of Irish people leaving Ireland. You have large numbers of Scots coming to Ireland. So, for instance, just to take one example, if maybe 100,000 people out of a population of about three-quarters of a million leave Ireland during the 17th century, about 120,000 Scots and English come into Ireland. Mm. So these are really, really big movements of people out of those populations. So it is Syria-esque in that no one is 
untouched by these movements. And then you have, the, the, in, the, in the previous century, the Moriscos were, were you know, the, the Spanish Muslims yeah. were expelled yeah. and replaced quite yeah. often yeah. by yeah. Irish guys. Yeah. And you, right? yeah, you have people, large movements of people then outside Europe as well, because you have, for instance, a lot of those um, conversos from Spain, the people who had formerly been Jewish who were expelled, they actually end up in Mexico. Right. They're now nominally Christians, but they end up in Mexico. Right. So you see these very, very large movements. So we often think of people going to the New World for economic reasons, you know, to go and eat turkey and do all sorts of stuff you might do in the New World or hunt for gold. But a lot of them are actually exiles and refugees. How easy was it for people to move then? I mean, they just such things as passports, border controls. I mean, obviously you didn't have the apparatus of state that we have today. You would be amazed, um, you know, even in the Franciscan archives that we have in UCD, you see passports, letters of passage. That's fairly bureaucratic. I mean... People, um, to use England as an example, um, English Catholics trying to get to the continent, go to the seminaries, regularly picked up, regularly arrested on the open seas. So the state actually can do a lot more in the early modern period than we often give it credit for. Diglon, can I just swing this back to you, right? This is going to be like tennis here. Um, Because John's just painted a picture of the the, the, the 17th century century Europe, the 30 years war, I mean, what half to one-third of the population of Germany were, were wiped out, I believe. Something of that order, you know. Now, one of, the, one of the great achievements, then, of the European Union, we're often told, is the fact that after two world wars in you know, the last century, Europe has been at peace, you know, for the last 50, 60 years. Do you think that's something that is taken for granted in this whole discussion about the European Union and Brexit in particular? Yes, well, it's, it's not often mentioned. I mean, it's, uh, you had, what, three wars. It was 1870, 1914, 1939, and then you had the European Economic Coal and Steel Community set up initially uh, between France and Germany and then the, the European uh, Economic Community and now the European Union. It is, I suppose, uh, the biggest peace process of all time, and it has been it has been very successful in in, in that sense. Um, I mean, the, the fact that we joined in 1973 again, I would say, it wasn't a reflection of a sudden onset of European ideology in Ireland uh, or a feeling of Europeanness. It was just a, a, a reflection of how dependent we were on, on on the British that we had to stay with them. Well, and it, that's it, why. It, 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 you could argue that the reason was peace in Europe, or I should say peace in, in Western Europe, which we're really talking about yeah. right now, was because people were exhausted after the Second World War. And of course there were periods after the Napoleonic Wars where there was a period of peace because people were worn out. But we mustn't forget either that um, there was a lot of violence in Europe. We know you have to think of the 1990s in, in former Yugoslavia, which yeah, was a yeah. fairly vicious war. We're, we're always conflating Europe with Western Europe, which I think we should not do. Now, the East and the other one is, of course, that European countries, as we know, particularly imperialist countries, were very active in other wars around the country and around the world. We were exporting our violence to all kinds of places, which we don't have to mention yet, and uh, they were going on. So, yes, parts of Europe were at peace, but not entirely. So, and there was still military resistance in parts of Latvia and Estonia up to, 19, the, up to 1951-52. So, yes, there was fighting going on. But anyway. John, I'll just come back to you now, because one of the things that comes up, has come up, um, comes up in the discussion of Brexit and so on is this whole swing to kind of right-wing populism all over the world, but in Europe uh, as well. 
And two of the countries that crop up in discussion here repeatedly would be Hungary and Poland. Mm -hmm. Now, I sometimes get the impression that people in Ireland think that Hungary and Poland are, are you know, small nations like ourselves. But that's not the case, is it? I mean, if you go back to the early modern period. No, Poland's a very powerful country, and it's, it's an unusual... Huge country as well. It's a massive country. It, it incorporates Lithuania as well. Um, it spreads at one point right down to what's now the Ukraine. Um, and it's an interesting country because... On the one hand, and it's a bit like the European Union, it's radically unstable. It has a parliament where they have to have unanimity to, to actually pass any legislation. Sounds which like means, new politics. Yeah, well, they don't pass much legislation, which actually works quite well um, overall. So um, that does sound like new politics. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what Poland has then, which is quite striking, it's actually one of the very few places in Europe that has something approaching a principled religious tolerance in the sense that the Poles allow, for a brief period, it is true, they allow all sorts of religious opinions, even people who deny the Holy Trinity, Unitarians. So Poland is, on the face of it, it looks large, unwieldy, too consensual, but it actually works. So there is a kind of funny parallel. And what about, what about Hungary? Yeah, Hungary is a country at this point where essentially most of Hungary has been gobbled up by the Ottoman Empire. Um, again, had been a very powerful kingdom in the late medieval period, but now Hungary is the front line for European Christendom, to use the, um, mm. the term that Alison was using earlier, where the Turk is literally at the door, where Islam is now, at the does door. That, but does that tell us a lot then about contemporary Hungarian paranoia, that, that it's, it's feeding into this, this uh, history? I, I, or a misunderstanding, maybe, of the history, but I, 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 I'm never really comfortable talking about Anton after 1700. But, <laughs> um, but I am, I am comfortable talking about historical trauma, and I think the kind of deep trauma that these group memories evoke. There is, there is probably something in it. This sort yeah. of huge anxiety about being swallowed up, mm. or about being, and I think lots of Irish people have it, the fear of the massacre, the fear of the sudden and terrible disaster that the other people are going to come and do something to you. And I would think it's not unfair to say that some modern Hungarians would share in that historical trauma, yeah. Mm. Yeah, well, essentially, I think you're absolutely correct. The past never quite goes away. Mm. But Hungary is also a more recent past, and yes. Declan was talking about uh, being old enough to remember us joining the European Economic Community. I remember as a young fella the Hungarian Revolution. I remember faded pictures in the Evening Echo and the Cork Examiner and uh, Hungarian refugees coming into Cork and running around the city and they were welcomed initially because they were refugees from communism which was the big bad brother but when they saw that these people could be causing trouble and getting drunk in the streets they weren't welcomed as much as they were and when the um, when there was a row recently about letting refugees into Hungary, I was reading an interview with a woman who was a Hungarian refugee who ended up in Canada. And what she said was, it's not the same. We were good refugees. These are bad refugees. <laughs> and that seems to be the case all the time, you know. <laughs> Just, John, going back to Poland, right? I, I was, a couple of years ago, I went holidays there, I went to Krakow, right? Mm -hmm. Beautiful city. Um, but one of the things that struck me, this might sound odd, like, I'm not that old, right? Was the apparent Catholicism of the place, right? Yeah. That you'd see people, uh, priests, nuns walking around, which you just don't see here in this part of the world anymore. But also the churches, right? And the, I mean, the, the opulence of them. You know, yes. I mean, when you compare what we've got in this country, it's, it's paltry, right? Because it was all kind of lashed together in the 19th century, you know, and they bought these kind of secondhand uh, statues of the Virgin Mary in Italy from not, you know, I mean, it was all pretty. 
you know, some of the stuff is is is, is not great in terms of quality. Not sure. No, but it's the, it's the it's the it's where you have a society. Yeah, there are some exceptions, right? But uh, th but this was like every single church was just mm -hmm. this gold plated, you yeah. know, whatever. But also, what it, the, the 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 negative side to it was though, it's also a church that's deeply embedded in a reactionary politics, right? Which you know is slightly different than here, where we we end up with a kind of a popular church, if you like, the end of a better phrase. Well, I'll tell you. Um, reactionary politics is another phrase that I, um, I, I... The reason why the churches in Poland are so beautiful and uh, so well endowed is because the Poles, the, his, the Catholic Church in Poland, historically se felt itself as being a church that had um, two frontiers. Mm. One where, as a Polish priest once said to me, were the last stop before orthodoxy were the edge mm, of mm. Latin Christianity. And the other reason is because the Poles are looking in the other direction, ironically looking west, saw themselves up against the Lutherans right. and Calvinists. So I think the Polish church is very, very concerned to um, present itself as a model of Baroque Christianity. And if you actually look inside Polish churches... Oh, Baroque, Baroque. Yeah. They, they, yeah, yeah, so a lot of those Jesuit churches in Poland and all, you could take those, dump them out of Krakow and plonk them down in Salamanca and they'd be the same churches. It's a and international like, style. It was yeah. used before lunch. You, you told me this thing about the, the frontier areas of Europe. But that was you, was it? Yes. yes it, I, I, well, most, I remember correctly. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah this, but this, this obviously is, is, is a major thing. If you're a Lithuanian, Polish, Hungarian, mm. like you, you're, 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 you feel yourself to be on the edge, but in the contemporary here and now and historically yeah. well I, I think a bit like Poland you have the big Russian bear on your other on your other side mm. and as we know the, the little bit I know about Russia is that right through the 19th century and pre, probably before that Russia and I think it's a debate that still goes on because I, I have some Russian friends as the fellow says mm. uh, whether is Russia actually European or should it look towards Asia Dostoevsky mm. was writing about this in his journals mm. endlessly and was there a Russian soul that was different from the European one and of course Russia has quite a distinct history apart from a few decades here and there from the rest of Europe. So in that sense, the, the border was sometimes Lithuania, sometimes even now it might be Ukraine, we don't know. It was Latvia, Lithuania and so on, or it was Poland. So yes, that, 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 that significance is there all the time. But I agree about what you're saying about the Polish church. Um, the, or even about the Irish church, I mean, we took a very... Um, almost a Victorian kind of Catholicism in some ways, mm. and it wasn't as opulent. And when I go to... Somebody once said that Sean O'Fellain um, went to Italy and he became converted to Catholicism, you know, <laughs> as a thing from when he was... And sometimes I feel, well, when I go to Spain and I see these beautiful churches that are full of what I call kind of baroque kitsch. I think it's fantastic. I love that kind of stuff. Whereas you go to a Catholic church here, that's much more like a Presbyterian church. Mm. From my kind of baroque mad imagination, right, right, right. I find that very disappointing, but that's another... That's only... Declan, yeah. Yeah, Deglon. Yeah. You just can't get me naming each time. <laughs> he was calling me Dagloon. The only other person who calls me Dagloon is Bertie Ahern. <laughs> How are you, Dagloon? Uh, Anyway, uh, I, I was on a visit to Clonmacnoise there some time ago, and uh, that could have been an even finer place. But uh, as far as I know, it was wrecked by uh, foreign foreign soldiers. So I think it's... I mean, the Catholic Church was, here was a voice of a persecuted uh, sector of the population and uh, didn't have the resources to, to, to build these wonderful churches. And... If 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 we if if they lost Alan in the process, I mean that's just the price you have to pay. Um, 
in, in terms of, uh, I was at a very, in, in terms of Europe, I was at a very interesting talk given by a man called Edward Luce uh, of the Financial Times. He's written a book called The Decline of Western Liberalism. And uh, he, he echoed some of the thoughts that I've had. I mean, there was a time when the left was about uh, the working class, the, as it happened, mainly white working class at the time, um, better pay and conditions, how, uh, well, housing, is, uh, the left is still on about housing. But, uh, say, if you look at the Labour Party here, and I'm not, not being partisan or, any, or, or hostile to the Labour Party at all, but um, they used to be um, concerned about, you know, social welfare rates, wages and so on. Now, they still um, do talk a bit about that, but... They, they seem to have turned more into an Irish version of the Lib Dems. They seem to be more, I mean, if you look at their history over the last 30 years, divorce, uh, same-sex marriage, um, abortion, I suppose, again. Um, and I'm not, not uh, denigrating any of those causes, but they're not, they're not, they're not um, traditional left causes. And I think the left has kind of lost its, or, or weakened its link. And I mean, you can t talk about the Democratic Party in the States as well to some extent. And you have, in England, you have the, the, the people in the areas where the mining industry is gone, the, the steel industry is gone. And the, what they call in the States, the Rust Belt. And that's where Donald Trump got a lot of his support. And also you have the phenomenon of the elites who are all very liberal and, you know, they all vote the, the right way on, on, on these issues that are mentioned, uh, quote-unquote right. Um, and they're all on very good pay and salaries, and nice houses and so on, and quite removed from the, uh, the ordinary uh, people who live from pay packet to pay packet. I think that's one of the problems with Europe, that it is, uh, there is a European elite there that's out of touch with, um, with, 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 these, with these ordinary people. And that's why these ordinary people are turning towards the likes of Le Pen, Geert Wilders, and, and in the States, Donald Trump. John, what do you reckon, the, the, what I was chatting to you earlier, I was saying, could, could we see the Protestant Reformation as an early manifestation of Brexit? <laughs> Dissatisfaction of the periphery with the with the high on the hog uh, cosmopolitan centre. In, in maybe I'll, I'll, I'll get. Good mark, John's, John's the Church of Ireland expert in many respects. Is he? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I'd, um, well, I'll say something and then you say something, and we may disagree as well. So that would be good. That's allowed. Uh, um, yeah, it's very tempting to see the reformations in England as, as a kind of Tudor Brexit, and there's some merit in that position, especially as Henry VIII's initial reformation was all about his reproductive problems and had almost no doctrinal content except for the fact that the ministers around him kind of pushed a quasi-Lutheran agenda. Um, but there was a long-term phenomenon there for a long time. People tend to forget that even before Henry broke with Rome, the Pope couldn't nominate bishops to the English church without the approval of the King of England. So there's a, mm. a long-term process there and it reaches an acute 
an acute moment. And in fact, Henry Dayton and Martin Luther did not get on at all. Henry hated Martin Luther because Luther kept writing to Henry with advice about how to conduct his affairs. So Henry, maybe you're right actually, Henry didn't want to hear from Rome and he certainly didn't want to hear from Wittenberg either. He didn't, uh, he didn't want Germany or he didn't want Rome. No experts then? N no, he was very anti-expert. He was the expert, that's true. Right. He was, defender, he was given the title Defender of the Faith by the Pope in 1521. That says it all. Mark, can I go just back to you? I want, again, I want to just swing back to the early modern period and just get a, a, a sense of what it was like in terms of the Irish in Europe. I mean, could, you, could, could we put a figure on this? Uh, roughly speaking, how many people, uh, Irish people, are there abroad in Europe and, and who are they? Like in terms of what class of people are they? I think, I think they're just like the mercantile class. There's also, uh, you get obviously traders, but then you also get something more than that. You get people fighting in the army in particular, because of course you forget how war-torn, I mean the 30 plenty years of war. There's plenty of work. Plenty of work yeah. and plenty of wars, and of course we all need bodies and people fighting on your cause. And as I was saying, you know, playing that, you know, this is fighting for the Catholic cause was very strong for a number of them. And then other people just wanted to be paid. They were given clothes, you know, they were given their military, and it was, they were taken, you know, looked after. So, I mean, I think a lot has to be said for working in the army, the mercantile industry, uh, absolutely. I mean, I remember hearing a paper a long time ago, about 10, 15 years ago, by Dave Edwards in Trinity, and he was talking about the Irish ghetto in London. I mean, how many, there were, he, he identified a huge amount of Irish people living in London in the Elizabethan period. So I don't know about putting a number on it, but I mean, the, the, num the names crop up all the time. Mm. I mean, you get huge amount, um, Eamon O'Cusson did a very interesting study of Brittany and he looked at the parish records and it's quite funny seeing all the, how Irish was how Irish names were spelt phonetically in parish records. Mm -hmm. And you get quite a lot of Irish people, but I don't know, in terms of putting a number on, I'd be quite hesitant. But you get a lot of people, and they, of course they integrate into society. Mm. They start to apply their own trade, and then you, know, you see something different, and you start to be interested, and you make something like the Irish mantle, for example, that Sir James Ware was talking about in 1649. You know, he saw uh, French women wearing them in San Malo. I mean, you know, it's so easy to adapt in the circumstances when you go abroad and apply your own personal trade. Now, I know that if you go to um, military archives in Vienna, you'll get loads and loads of Irish names uh, you know, amongst the officer corps there. How Irish did these people remain, though, after one or two generations, or you know, apart from their names? Yeah, I, or are they just absorbed into the local? You, you can be absorbed, but I mean, you, you actually—I'm I'm pretty sure there's an O'Neill Street somewhere in Spain. I mean, I, mm. I, I, bottom line is, I think people will always go back to their ancestry, no different from today. I mean. I feel more Irish when I go abroad than I am when I'm at home. I like to slag everybody off at home, but once you go, you know, once you go abroad for a certain amount of time, you end up justifying who you are and defending what's going on at home. I genuinely think that there is an increasing sense, and it's also interesting in terms of sensing the Irishness. People would like to say, oh, it's Catholic Ireland, but it's, it's what's so interesting, particularly in the 17th century, is you get the Protestant community in Ireland starting to identify themselves as being Irish. And that's what's so interesting. And when they go abroad, they're either sent into exile or they're doing their grand tour. They're still identifying themselves as being Irish. 
And that's becomes, and like the seminaries too, you get records where, um, you know, there's that, very much that sense of Irishness being very, very real. The further you were away from home, Philip O'Sullivan Bear wrote his great Catholic history of Ireland in Lisbon. Um, and I, I genuinely believe that, you know, the, the further, I know three or four generations down, that's still in your blood and you're still very much made aware of how, where your roots come from. And the Irish in America are your classic example. Very strong. And just on that one, I think the interesting thing is that we talk about the Irish who made an impact in the colleges and so on. And they were quite numerous in their own way, although I remember going to see the Irish College in Santiago de Compostela some years ago, and it surprised me how small it was. And I'm not sure how many numbers of students at any one time were in Andy's College. I presumed it was quite small, but the vast majority of vagrants and soldiers, they, became, they were assimilated. But I do recall the very first time I was in Madrid when I was a student, and I saw... O'Donnell buses, buses del O'Donnell. So I'm not sure if they're still there, but um, some O'Donnell managed to get up a bus company. Well, probably Private Donegal, Donegal O'Donnell. Yeah, Very yeah. common name up here. Somebody in the audience right? here? Yeah. Do you have them? No, you use the, use the radio mic so we can hear you. Yeah. I mean, there's a Vincent O'Donnell from Inver here in Donegal who has brought a, a troop of us way over on the continent to follow, let's say, where the O'Neills and the O'Donnells went to. And again, the interesting history that is over there and the links that are still continuing down to this day and that interaction between here and there. And I suppose what's interesting about it was uh, to go over and to see that in action over there. And they would also have brought us to... Uh, off over there again between Vienna it would have been we would have gone to Vienna initially we went we followed the the trail down to Rome of the of the Earls as they fled but again let's say to see that and to be bringing us of the modern day in to see how it all happened and to see the results of that in Europe still down to this day and the strong links that are still there it's interesting to follow, personally for me anyway, from my point of view, not being an O'Donnell and to have had the privilege of being there. So it's very, very, very much alive. Well, um, I've always been curious, apparently Pather O'Donnell, uh, the well-known uh, writer and Republican from Donegal, said that when the, Earl, the flight of the Earls took place, that the lower orders, as, for want of a better term, were actually cheering. They were so glad to see the back of their oppressors. I don't know. Perhaps now that I'm here, maybe somebody can comment on that. Well, the, my, my father-in-law always used to say, and I think he was right about this, that the one thing that the flight of the Earls gave us was the replacement of the Earls by a foreign aristocracy that we could hate with clear conscience. <laughs> Other countries are stuck with aristocracies of their own kind, and it's always harder to hate yeah, your own. Yeah. And, and we should also say about the Earls that... Yeah. Uh, having a bit of an interest in what happened to the O'Connors as they went abroad. And I've taken a general interest in uh, one of, from 1798, a compatriot of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, Arthur O'Connor. And again, having entered into with Napoleon and becoming a general under Napoleon and what happened to him. I mean, again, it's interesting to see there again as to how that link has come back to Carrigafoyle in County Kerry. So again, very much, even though he doesn't have direct descendants there of the O'Connor name, it's still very relevant to the place where he was and where he cited himself at that time. 
Can I, can I just, uh, uh, Mark, since you didn't answer the question I asked you, if you missed it, uh, I, 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 I'll help you out here, right? Do we know how many Irish are currently on continental Europe? Was that, I, did I hear a figure? I gave the figure of half a million. Half a million? Yeah. Okay, no, I'm not sure where I got the figure, but that's the figure I it's used. It's good enough, it's good enough. It's the only figure we've got here at the uh, minute. Yeah, um, sure, it's grand. Michael, it's my, grand. Sorry, yeah. Yeah. Uh, just to, to, to bring the argument into current contemporary issues, there were there are two major themes that are dominating negotiations, economic relationships between Ireland and the rest of the world, the UK, and common travel areas. Okay? Now, are there any influences that are modern that supersede a lot of the historic, and I'm thinking of two in particular. One is foreign direct investment, the impact of multinational companies on economic relationships, and to what extent they sometimes supersede political entities. In other words, you have to play ball with the multinationals if you're going to get capital moving and if you're going to get workers. We even had an, a Donegal company out in Boston last week, uh, you know, looking at uh, life science uh, products, looking for trained workers, all that kind of thing. In other words, looking at global markets. So that's one aspect of it. So are the multinationals going to shape a lot of these economic relationships apart from political issues uh, and is that going to influence you know the, the final shape of the relationships between the UK the Europe and the rest of the world coming into it rather than just Ireland Europe and the UK so that's the multinationals the other is obviously finance banking and what we saw with the big crash where money uh, is now kind of global in its impact. So we had the derivatives, we had the collapse, and we had the most highly trained finance people, as we saw from the documentaries, in Wall Street, bucking the rules in order to sell derivatives that had no value. So do we need some kind of global control over money and financial institutions that supersede a lot of this, you know, individual political entities? And how the hell do you do you get that governance at that Michael, what you're level? Looking for there okay. is, you're looking for regulation, and then we, we, we've deregulated over the last number of years. Well, yeah, no, I mean... I'm just saying, I mean, are these things, have these things to be factored in if, if we're going to have successful outcomes of the, the, these negotiations? That, in fact, we'll have to think more globally than Ireland, UK, sure. Europe. I tell you, no, just on your first point about uh, multinationals, I, I, I was going to give you a quick answer. Uh, let's see how Donald Trump does in clipping the wings of the multinationals. You see, this is the interesting thing. There's certain things that, uh, well, I think the term for it is uh, capitalist realism. In other words, that anything outside the norm of you know, liberal capitalism is kind of mad, you know, loony or whatever. And one of the, the givens is that you have to accept foreign direct investment, you know. Uh, which, and, of course, we benefit from that. Ireland has, in general. And now Trump wants to reverse that. Now, the point is, will he be successful, or is he like King Canute? sitting on the strand, right? But that's an interesting one. Here we have a completely right-wing, xenophobic president who, who is, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way, pursuing a progressive agenda, which is to try and curtail the power of multinationals and their ability to, to ignore national frontiers or whatever. Anyone else want to come in on that? Well, I mean, the, the... Could Trump be a kind of a hero then in some ways? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Trump ends up being some kind of a, a hero figure for some superficial gesture that he makes. I mean, uh, he's, he's, he's quite good at PR in, in, in his own way. Um, 
in terms of foreign direct investment, I suppose one, Brexit will probably be good for us in the sense that uh, companies which might have located in the UK will probably be, be looking at us as uh, an English-speaking uh, member of, of the union. Um, now, I know Europe has, is quite jealous of our uh, low uh, corporate tax rate and uh, you know, would, would, would gladly uh, up it, I think, and a lot of, a lot of them would gladly increase it. Um, I mean, the Apple thing... I have to say that I'm, I'm, I'm personally with Europe on this one. I think the, the, the tax charge to Apple, you couldn't buy an Apple with it. Um, it's a joke. Uh, and, uh, you know, the fact that they have 6,000 jobs in Cork is probably uh, uh, the main reason why uh, we've been so, so tolerant uh, in, 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 their, in their behavior. But it will take some time for, for that to... Uh, to be resolved. In terms of finance, banking, and so on, I mean, in theory, we should uh, get some banks relocating to Dublin. I understand there are, you know, explorations underway. Uh, I'm not sure Dublin has enough in the way of facilities for, for these people. I mean, even in terms of schools or whatever. Um, and they may find a place like Amsterdam uh, more attractive, I suspect. They, in many cases, they probably will. Can, can I just yeah. say something here? I think, you know, the, this issue of money and foreign direct investment and regulation, in a way, most of our mental furniture comes from the last 150 years with the rise of the nation state and all the rest. But actually, that's an aberration historically. Most of the time, national policies have been determined by money. And most, mostly money. So Scotland goes into a union with England in 1707. Bankrupt. It's because Scotland's bankrupt. And I think this idea, and possibly Donald Trump's idea, that you have these nation states that have these powers and they can do stuff yeah. is a complete and total illusion. Most of the time, it's money and the movement of people and goods and ideas as well that are the really important things that determine how things work out. So I think we have a... What we've got now, actually, with the EU for all its mess and complexity and all the rest, it looks much more like it has been for most of human history, where there's an open acknowledgement of the way that things flow around and you try and deal with them, and half the time you try and regulate for them and then something really big happens and then you go back again. So I think we find ourselves in a, in a, in a situation that looks more like the rest of human history than, than before. And, and the potential for calamity actually looks more like human history than before. Can I just make a remark there, just before you come in? Um, mention was made before lunch about narrow self-interest in pejorative terms. I would just like to make the observation that narrow self-interest is the only real interest that there is. Yeah, we've you know, often spoken about it when we joined Europe, so to speak, first, that the Irish politicians were very good at what's now called networking, and the, the good old phrase used, we were, we were cute whores, you know? Yeah. Uh, maybe we want, need a lot more cute whorism than we're willing to admit, in other words, make the best deals as far as, 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 far as we can. But I, I have a very simple... Um, uh, platform when it comes to what's going to happen in the future. I think we haven't the least clue what's going to happen. And for every economist, and I've examined a lot, and for every economist it is going to be good, another one says it's going to be bad. And I honestly don't think we're, I think we're going into 
um, a very uncertain future, but then the future was always uncertain. And I'm not because we are a Western developed nation with a good educated workforce. I don't have that many fears. I, I think certainly things, and Diaglan was pointing it out, particularly the agri-food business, I think could be in serious difficulty. But there may be other things that we can replace them with. Just as John brought up the idea of money there, one of the things I keep hearing is that the wealth of the world has been concentrated into fewer and fewer people. And in my twilight years, I expected if we didn't have a French Revolution, at least we'd have a 1917 revolution because lots of people in traditional jobs are losing those jobs because of changes in work practice, because of robotics and all the rest. And even now, I think they're going to put some sort of visual forms into supermarkets that will bring you around, non-corporeal ones. So people losing jobs. Now, you'd imagine they'd turn to the left. It seems to me what's happening if you take Trump <clears throat> and Brexit, they're turning to fascism as the answer to their problems, not towards the other side. So is the panel anything to say about the concentration of wealth, the smaller numbers of people, and the drive towards profits in major corporations and so on, leading to the loss of jobs and the worst kinds of working conditions that people have? Well, I'd say something on the concentration of wealth. It's, it's historic, it seems to be true, but then historically there have been massive concentrations of wealth before. I would see this as a normal. There's a point, I can't remember the date, it's late in the 15th century, where a Nigerian king comes up into Egypt and he, he he spends so much money, he releases so much gold into the Mediterranean economy that the value of gold plummets by something like 20%. That's a massive concentration of wealth. So I think we've been here before, but... Yeah, I think it's always been the case that wealth will be concentrated in those people who have power. What has happened is that the belief in social democracy has weakened hugely in Western Europe, as we see. And I mean, the case of, and it's not up to us to talk what's going to happen in Britain, but here you have a Tory party that who are nakedly saying we're going to give more wealth to the rich people. And you have a Labour Party who are beginning to say, let's return to the 1970s, meaning let's have a national health service, let's have private, let's have public railways like they have in Germany, let's, have, let's defend the universities, normal things in the, as they have in the Scandinavian countries. So the British have a choice. Do they want that or do they want the concentration of wealth in the hands of the few? And unfortunately, many people choose, let's give it to the rich. So we only have ourselves to blame when we hand power over to these people. We could stop it if we wanted to, but we don't. Just use the, use the yeah, mic there. Yeah. Is the use of philanthropic money part of that sort of overall look of money in, in the hands of a small number of people and how that money is used? Yeah. I think, just, I think can, it can, can be. Can you make yeah. a comment there? But, but this, this, if you, if, uh, as far as I know, the, the, the the, the gap between the, the, you know, the top and the bottom was, was at its narrowest, I think, in the 1970s, right? And it had, it had risen to that point in the, after the Second World War. But the context, that was the defeat of Nazism, fascism, and the implementation of a welfare state as a reward, if you like, for the, 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 the populations of the, the world who had helped to, to defeat it. Uh, in other words, it was driven by an ideological agenda. And I think that there is a certain irony because we, we've, we've, we've a plethora of um, centenaries over the recent decade. And, of course, this year we, we had the centenary of the, the Bolshevik Revolution. So you can say that that was an attempt to address that particular problem 100 years ago. But that didn't work out, you know. So, like, the, 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 this thing well, of disparity of wealth 
it was it was narrowed when there was a movement that demanded that it be narrowed. But people ideologically became disarmed, it seems to me, and bought yeah. the snake oil yeah. of the trickle-down economics or whatever. You know. But there were two revolutions in Russia. There was a social democratic revolution, which is then overthrown by the communist revolution. And if you ever visit the Hermitage in St. Petersburg, on which it is said it would take you 11 years to go around and look at every object there, you fully understand why they had a revolution because of the massive amount of wealth that was there. But one of the reasons, and you're right about the, the gap between rich and poor that had narrowed in the 1970s, but the other one was, I think, that all the time there's the idea that there is another system out there, meaning communism. It's not necessarily in your context consciousness, but it's, it's there, and the fear of that, mm. and once uh, the Soviet Union collapsed and all of that entailed, which was obviously a good thing, then there was, there was no other alternative, mm. even as an ideology, and when Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan just let the reins loose, took them all, the dogs of finance were let loose amongst the world. Uh, and that goes back to point, going on too far. the point you were making, Michael, about, about regulation. The trend, what my point was that the trend for the last 30, 40 years has been exactly in the opposite direction to deregulation. The, the mic there, yeah. The other part of that is the extent to which ideology impacts on the movement of capital or mm. the impact of multinationals. And, and traditionally, we looked at three ideologies capitalism, socialism, and kind of, um, co sorry, communism, capitalism, and socialism, or social democratic values, as somehow moderating the impact of free markets just totally. Winner takes all, survival of the fittest, mm. go for it, you know, that free market approach versus communism, which is there's no incentive for, you know, the entrepreneur, the, the, the guy who's going to lead uh, innovation. And then in between is how, how do you design a social democratic system that, uh, you know, gives you the kind of distribution you're talking about. And I suppose what we're trying to discuss today in, in some ways is the impact of the reshaping of political institutions uh, in other words, national entities, Irish nationalism, and the unions between national entities, like the EU as a union of independent states, and how you govern that in a way that it doesn't become so bloody top-heavy, bureaucratic and all the rest of it, that you still can achieve those values while having regard to the impact of, of, of free market forces on a global scale. You know, it's, 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 it's a complex argument, but... I mean, that's what people are trying to do, I expect, in these kind of negotiations. Um, in uh, uh, Michel Barnier and all the rest of it, and, and, and Britain. And uh, are there any kind of lessons from history that we can learn that can help to shape the outcome of that? Uh, you know, because uh, this morning, I think Declan talked about uh, not, not kicking them in the face and rubbing dirt in their eyes and playing it diplomatically, but... Um, mm. I, don't, I haven't the answer for it. I wouldn't be here. But. Well, there, there, is very, there is various kind of trust-busting legislation in the United States that was applied in the early 20th century. But, I mean, I don't, I don't think that prospered in the long run, you know. Listen, I want to come back to a, a point that came up here in the I discussion. Think, uh, just get, uh, just get, in, get in there. Yeah. I think we need some kind of a popular movement, uh, something like mm. what, what the FDR led in the, in the 30s, for example, mm. um, to, to uh, you know, exercise greater control over the finance banking world, which is really, uh, has really has gone mad, frankly. And even if you look at the salaries that these bankers pay one another, 
for being incompetent is extraordinary. I mean, they regard money the same way you, you, as a, you or I regard popcorn, you know. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, uh, even on, on a more basic level, you know, uh, we're paying 160 euro, euros a year in TV licenses. And if you look at some of the salaries that people in our national broadcasts are getting, they're just absolutely ridiculous because... Uh, uh, no, apart from Pat Kinney, I can't think of anyone who left RTE in the in the recent years. But they're getting huge, huge pay. Some of them are getting huge pay, while others are are are, are not on not on in, on great conditions. But in terms of the Russian Revolution and all that, I think uh, I, I I worked in Russia for five months, and I, I would have had a kind of romantic. Uh, maybe gras for the, the Russian Revolution before that, but uh, having seen the way things turned out and having seen uh, people selling their personal belongings in the subway, like their clothes pegs even, and uh, selling their books and selling their war medals, um, you know, you couldn't you couldn't consider the Russian Revolution to have been uh, being a success, mm. but you know, in de- what I'm suggesting is that the social democratic movement appears to have lost lost its way. I, the, the, some maybe hope from the the, the Labour Party's manifesto, which was, uh, uh, I'd say, quite deliberately leaked um, a few days ago, and and there's a, a, a reminder of the. 1940, there's a touch of 1945 about it, which is uh, encouraging. I mean, it's, it, I don't think it's going to prevent the Labour Party from, from a, a very serious uh, uh, setback in the election, but it might in the long term prove of benefit. But it certainly would strike me as, as the way to go to show ordinary people that, that the, uh, you know, that democratic forces uh, genuinely democratic forces are interested in their welfare. Can I bring this discussion back to Brexit uh, before we run out of time? Uh, because it was uh, said here that you know the, re- the reason we, the, one of the reasons we joined the, 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 the European the EEC as it was then, and we or we applied to join the 60s was because the United Kingdom were joining, basically. Now the point is, if we join because the United Kingdom are joining, why don't we leave because they're leaving? Anybody? Well, I don't, want to hug, I don't want to hug this, but uh, I, I could see that happening. I could see us, because we are so close to Britain and the, our geographical location is so dependent on Britain, that if, if the negotiations come up with a bad deal from our point of view, uh, we could be forced, uh, and it's not something I would advocate, but we could be forced to consider the Norwegian option or the Swiss option or, or one of those uh, arm's-length options where we would be, you know, uh, still have a very close relationship with, 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 with Europe, but not, not to the detriment of our uh, economic relationship with Britain. But if you flip that too, though, if you look at the euro, we voted to go into the euro, and I know Britain stayed in the sterling. I mean, there have been circumstances where we showed that we can go our different way, but at the same time is possibly, I, I, I mean, there's a strong chance that we might leave the EU. I don't there's a chance, but I'm not sure I believe it. But the, the other thing I would say is um, it's all about adapting. And if there's anything that talks about history, it's you always adapt to various things. We do, we're going into the unknown here, so we don't know what's going to happen. 
but there's always that element of we'll work something out. And I find it very hard to imagine that the Irish government will won't find a special arrangement with Britain, even if they're outside the, when they're outside the European Union. Yeah. One of the important things will be this idea of the euro versus sterling. I remember when O'Donoghue wrote the book about the rotten heart of Europe. Um, they, they, they did not, the idea that a disparate group of countries should use the same currency when they have intrinsically different economic cycles uh, is not going to work. Uh, Many of the financial experts around the world think that it is not, um, is the euro going to disappear? The question is, when is it going to go? It probably will happen that the, the euro is not going to work. This is most important. When Maggie Thatcher walked in with her experts, Donoghue said that um, she was the only one who was well briefed and her arguments were convincing. The euro was a mistake. Now, one of the ways to destroy a country is to start to tinker with its currency and to devalue it. We all know what happened when the gold standard was abandoned. But now we've had serial quantitative easings in Europe. And that basically means that you print money and you devalue the currency. And when you produce large amounts of, fine, of cash in a zero interest rate environment, that money did not trickle down to the people in the streets. What happened was assets largely increased in value. Look at the obscene prices of houses in Dublin. Look at students paying a thousand a month for a small apartment. Look at the price of houses in London. They're totally obscene. We've now got to the situation where our children and grandchildren cannot afford to buy houses. Pensions are disappearing. Huge university fees, not in Ireland but in the UK, where our children end up after a four or five year course with huge mortgages. And they know in America that only 50% of these will ever be repaid. Uh, and they're now charging compound interest to UK students at the moment. So I think that the Italian banks are in a dreadful state, the Greek banks are in a dreadful state, the French economy is, hasn't been good, it's a very socialist economy as I'm sure most of you know. Um, so we have not been paying back our debt is the other problem. The Irish debt since the crash has increased year on year. They're not paying back the debt. And we're kicking this tin down the road for our children and our grandchildren. The economic future is very uncertain. Very uncertain. Thank you for that cheery intervention there, right? <laughs> right. No, a, a very opposite one. Anyone here argued the, 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 uh, the irregular case? I'm curious to know. Because you, you seem to be heading that direction. You're saying that the euro's on the way out. The euro's supposed to go. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, you're, you're not. Yeah. Anybody else here argued the, the, the Erexit case? So, 
That's nobody in the room. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, I, I don't think, I mean, again, there is the dangers there that we might, but I, I don't see it happening for, for various reasons. One has to do with the nature of the United Kingdom itself. Now, I've been going to Scotland for quite a long time, and I've seen a greater confidence growing there year in, year out. And at some date, I think there will be maybe independence in Scotland. I, I, I feel it's going to come at some stage, which would mean vast change within the United Kingdom itself. Um, the other one would be that if we were to, if we were to um, go leave because of Britain, it would be a kind of a sign of failure of the Irish state and of the Irish people. And I can't see us even admitting that, even if it was true, which of course I don't think it is. And the other one is a lot of the, the, the good things that happen in Ireland, leave the bad things to one side, happened because of our a membership of the European Union, and I think as I've worked in universities most of my life, the fact that we did have some kind of free university education, and now I know that fees are crawling up and under various guises, but I used to teach a group of students, European students and American students, I got great joy of saying to the American students, how much do you pay for European fees for your university? They would say, oh, 20,000, 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 dollars per year. They would ask the Europeans, from all over Europe, and they would say, nothing. Mm. And the Americans were shocked. And of course, the Irish students, okay, it's, it's creeping up along the way. There were a lot of good things happened, and I can't, the ideal of the European Union, which is a kind of a socially democratic ideal, I think, despite our love of high prices of houses or, or, or grabbing mean-minded capitalism, despite all that, there's a good heart beating somewhere. Okay. I think. Anybody else in the audience? Yeah. Hello. I have to say, I, I remember before we went into the European Union, and at that time we didn't have what they called free education. We were lucky to get second level education. Uh, when you went, uh, I was in the training college, there was a, a list for men or boys, there was a list for uh, what they called open competition, there was preparatory colleges, and there was a separate uh, list for religious. And they were all educated and trained separately. All that had to finish when we went into the European Union. That was one aspect. But what I haven't heard anything about today is the environment. How it's all about money and business, but we have to live in an environment which we have to mind. And what how does Europe work on that? And what are the implications for the environment with staying in Europe or leaving Europe? How will Britain work out? Will it affect them? I, I, think, I think the Brits are heading for ecological catastrophe. They look like they have an appetite for repealing most of their environmental legislation along the lines that the Americans are quietly doing. And I, I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I think in terms of the environment, I would say the European Union, for me, I mean, I'm only a historian and I don't really do this stuff, but like speaking personally, I think the European Union did two really good things for Ireland. One was environmental legislation of various kinds and the second thing was the status of women. If you look at the marriage ban, or the, the bar, marriage bar, after we joined the EU, that goes very, very quickly. Things change. So I think in terms of that kind of soft, and, and we got so used to it, we kind of forgot it. Like, like you say, you know, that we, we, we forgot that things were different. Um, and then in many respects, things are better. 
I think. Just on the environment, right? We there. never got the cheap wine, though. Yeah. I'm pretty annoyed about that. <laughs> pretty annoyed about that. We were promised that, and we never got it. Can you just make one observation on the environment, right? Because uh, in terms of if there's a hard Brexit, one of, the, one of the, the sectors most at risk is the agricultural sector, and particular beef production, right? But could this be a blessing in disguise? I mean, is not our beef production unsustainable in the long run, given the, 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 the greenhouse gases it produces, the health issues that its product produces, etc.? This, this is heresy here now, guys, coming from the, the platform. But really, there's an argument for saying there is no future for our beef industry anyway, regardless of Brexit. And maybe this is, this is a blessing in disguise. This is one of those, those disruptor moments that makes us change tack uh, and do something else. Well, well, there's no doubt that we are destroying the environment. I would recommend a recent book to you if you're interested in the environment. It's, it's a publication called The Moth Snowstorm. The Moth Snowstorm. A beautiful little book to hold as well. Published about 2015 by a renowned British environmentalist called Michael McCarthy. Um, we, we are destroying the environment. There's also a myth that Ireland's environment is very good, and we're actually green and very good at looking after our water and our land. Nothing could be further from the truth. Ireland is one of the worst offenders in terms of destroying the environment and looking after its water. Examination of 800 local water systems showed that 75% of them are polluted with E. coli, uh, runoffs, destruction of the water table from slurry, and um, from our sewage systems, which are not properly managed. Um, in our own Donegal Bay here, which is one of the largest bays in Ireland, it has a dreadful record of pouring raw sewage into the bay. In Killybegs, for example, and certainly in that huge conurbation of Bundorn, up to recently, they were pumping raw sewage in. They examined about, um, I forget the exact numbers, but about in, two, in the year 2000, they examined 2,000 of our waterways, that small, medium, and large rivers. And they did the acceptable level, that, did they meet acceptable levels? And there were something like um, maybe 200, that 200 out of maybe 800 that came up to the standard. They repeated that recently, and there were only 80 that met the standard now. We are pouring millions of gallons onto our land, which is running down into our waterways. We, are, we have a monoculture of one type of grass, which is silage grass. Our insects are disappeared. When you look at, when you look at the pollinators, the insects are disappearing. Um, our water processings are producing large amounts of estrogen-like materials in our drinking water. And that is causing cancers, increased prostate cancer, um, increased genetic abnormalities, increased sterility in men. We are destroying our environment. We are destroying our hedgerows. Look at the GLOSS system now. And the aerial satellites are telling farmers to remove their hedgerows. They're doing that again now. Uh, they're speaking out of... The, the, 
The worst offenders are the agricultural so-called people. And you cannot make them custodians of the environment. So you, you need to take a long, hard look at the country. Now, anyone else want to come in? I, I want to wrap up here. Sorry. Just a quick yeah, point on that in, in, in reply. Uh, in fact, during the 80s and 90s, and up until our GDP equated much with the European level, there was quite a bit of investment of European money into clean-up our water systems and our wastewater systems. And Donegal Bay is an example of it, where there was quite a lot of capital money from Europe put in to put in water treat wastewater treatment plants in Donegal Town, in Rusnala, in Ballyshannon, funding for Killy Beggs, but because there was private companies using it as well, they were asked to pay a contribution, and that's where the, that's where the hassle gets up, when actually you move from private money and you're asked for some private investment. So one of the benefits of being in Europe over the last 30 or 40 years was the actual investment from European funds in to help us to clean up the environment. And a lot of it was our own making as to whether it was used or not. I think I should make the point just to bring a bit of counterbalance to, to that. And Donegal Bay did benefit. Okay. Hell yeah, what? You, you can, you, you can continue that discussion afterwards, right? Sorry. Right. Um, I just want to go. I want. I want to go to the panel here to wrap up. Maybe. Do you want to say something from the early modern point of view? Okay. Alan. Thanks. That was a that was a pass. Go on, go on, go on. You, the pass is passed to you. Yeah, the pass. Yeah, I got the pass. Uh, uh, some remarks to wrap up our discussion. Oh, oh just some general remarks. Well, okay. we, we're, we're, we, you've got the floor. You, you've got the last word here. Oh. oh. <laughs> Please. I just want to make two very small points that just came up. One was about the, the earls going out from Donegal. Um, one, and the story that people were cheering and waving and so on. They may have been, but I'm not sure what the source of that is. I have a suspicion that it's a piece of folklore. Mm -hmm. And interestingly as well, um, in, in Irish, it's not known as the flight of the earls. It's not used anywhere. Yeah. It is deeper, either deeper, which means the expelling, or simply emacht, yeah. off they go. Yeah. Uh, and because it was, there was an expectation that they would return. So it didn't seem like the end of an era the way that we look back now as an end of an era. Yeah. The other one was just as we were trying and we were talking about um, uh, the free markets. And I would love free markets if they were free markets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the free markets, they're being supported by governments and their grants and all kinds of uh, deregulation which suits them uh, along the way. So, and then, of course, by education, by training, by all the research that's been done in universities. Free markets, yes, but not what we're getting at the moment. Okay. <laughs> anyway. So, on that note, we'll, we'll wrap up. I'd just like to thank uh, our panel here. Um, uh, Mark Empey, Dig Long, the Badoon, uh, John McCafferty and, and uh, Alan Titley. And I'd just like to thank you, the audience, for your attention, and particularly those people uh, who, who contributed from the floor. Now, uh, the next History Island Head School will be in the National Library in Dublin, if you're around, on Tuesday the 23rd of May at 7 o'clock. And the topic there will be Ireland and the USA, 1917 to Trump. Trump has to be in any, the title of every talk now. So hopefully I'll, I'll see some of you there. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you. Thank you.